Chapter 32, Part 1 of the Commentaries on the Laws of England, Book 2, by William Blackstone. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Roy Haynes. Of Title by Testament and Administration, Part 1. There yet remain to be examined in the present chapter two other methods of acquiring personal estates, viz. by testament and administration, and these I propose to consider in one and the same view, they being in their nature so connected and blended together as makes it impossible to treat of them distinctly without manifest tautology and repetition. 11.12 in pursuit, then, of this joint subject, I shall first inquire into the original and antiquity of testaments and administrations, shall secondly show who is capable of making a last will and testament, shall thirdly consider the nature of a testament and its incidents, shall fourthly show what an executor and an administrator are and how they are to be appointed, and lastly, shall select some few of the general heads of the office and duty of executors and administrators. First, as to the original of testaments and administrations. We have more than once observed that when property came to be vested in individuals by the right of occupancy, it became necessary for the peace of society that this occupancy should be continued not only in the present possessor, but in those persons to whom he should think proper to transfer it, which introduced the doctrine and practice of alienations, gifts, and contracts. But these precautions would be very short and imperfect if they were confined to the life only of the occupier, for then, upon his death, all his goods would again become common and create an infinite variety of strife and confusion. The law of very many societies has therefore given to the proprietor a right of continuing his property after his death, in such persons as he shall name, and, in defect of such appointment or nomination, the law of every society has directed the goods to be vested in certain particular individuals exclusive of all other persons. The former method of acquiring personal property according to the express directions of the deceased, we call a testament. The latter, which is also according to the will of the deceased, not expressed indeed, but presumed by the law, we call in England an administration, being the same which the civil lawyers term a succession ab intestato, and which answers to the descent or inheritance of real estates. Testaments are of very high antiquity. We find them in use among the ancient Hebrews, though I hardly think the example usually given of Abraham's complaining that unless he had some children of his body, his steward, Eliezer of Damascus, would be his heir, is quite conclusive to show that he had made him so by will. And indeed, a learned writer has adduced this very passage to prove that in the patriarchal age, on failure of children or kindred, the servants born under their master's roof succeeded to the inheritance as heirs at law. But, 
to omit what Eusebius and others have related of Noah's testament, made in writing and witnessed under his seal, whereby he disposed of the whole world, I apprehend that a much more authentic instance of the early use of testaments may be found in the sacred writings, wherein Jacob bequeaths to his son Joseph a portion of his inheritance double to that of his brethren, which we will find carried into execution many hundred years afterwards, when the posterity of Joseph were divided into two distinct tribes, those of Ephraim and Manasseh, and had two several inheritances assigned them. Whereas the descendants of each of the other patriarchs formed only one single tribe and had only one lot of inheritance. Solon was the first legislator that introduced wills into Athens, but in many other parts of Greece they were totally discountenanced. In Rome they were unknown till the laws of the Twelve Tables were compiled, which first gave the right of bequeathing, and among the northern nations, particularly among the Germans, testaments were not received into use. And this variety may serve to evince that the right of making wills and disposing of property after death is merely a creature of the civil state, which has permitted it in some countries and denied it in others, and, even where it is permitted by law, it is subjected to different formalities and restrictions in almost every nation under heaven. With us in England, this power of bequeathing is coeval with the first rudiments of the law, for we have no traces or memorials of any time when it did not exist. Mention is made of intestacy in the old law before the conquest as being merely accidental and the distribution of the intestate's estate, after payment of the Lord's Heriot, is then directed to go according to the established law. Sive quis incoria, sive morte repentina, pueret intestatos mortus, dominus tamen nullum rerum suarum partem, prite erum quae jure debitor eriate nomine, sive esumito. Verum possessiones uxori, liberus, et coniatione proximus, pro suo quique iuri, distribuantor. But we are not to imagine that the power of bequeathing extended originally to all men's personal estate. On the contrary, Glanville will inform us that by the common law, as it stood in the reign of Henry II, a man's goods were to be divided into three equal parts, of which one went to his heirs or lineal descendants, another to his wife, and the third was at his own disposal. Or, if he died without a wife, he might then dispose of one moiety and the other went to his children. And so, a converso, if he had no children, the wife was entitled to one moiety and he might bequeath the other. But, if he died without either wife or issue, the whole was at his own disposal. The shares of the wife and children was called their reasonable parts, and the writ de ratione belli parte bonorum was given to recover it. This continued to be the law of the land at the time of Magna Carta, which provides that the king's debts shall first of all be levied, and then 
the residue of the goods shall go to the executor to perform the will of the deceased. And if nothing be owing to the crown, omnia catala cedant defuncto, salvis exori ipsus et pueres sui rationa libus partis sui. In the reign of King Edward III, this right of the wife and children was still held to be the universal or common law though frequently pleaded as the local custom of Berks, Devon, and other counties. And Sir Henry Finch lays it down expressly in the reign of Charles I to be the general law of the land. But this law is at present altered by imperceptible degrees, and the deceased may now by will bequeath the whole of his goods and chattels, though we cannot trace out when first this alteration began. Indeed, Sir Edward Coke is of the opinion that this never was the general law, but only obtained in particular places by special custom, and to establish that doctrine, he relies on a passage in Bracton, which, in truth, when compared with the context, makes directly against his opinion. For Bracton lays down the doctrine of the reasonable part to be the common law, but mentions that as a particular exception which Sir Edward Coke has hastily cited for the general rule. And Glanville, Magna Carta, Fleta, the yearbooks, Fitzherbert, and Finch do all agree with Bracton that this right to the pars rationalibus was by the common law, which also continues to this day to be the general law of our sister kingdom of Scotland, to which we may add, that whatever may have been the custom of later years in many parts of the kingdom, or however it was introduced in derogation of the old common law, the ancient method continued in use in the province of York, the Principality of Wales, and the City of London till very modern times, when, in order to favor the power of bequeathing, and to reduce the whole kingdom to the same standard, three statutes have been provided. The one, 4 and 5, William and Mary, C2, explained by 2 and 3, Anne, C5, for the province of York, another, 7 and 8, William III, C38, for Wales, and a third, 2, George I, C18, for London, whereby it is enacted that persons within those districts and liable to those customs may, if they think proper, dispose of all their personal estates by will, and the claims of the widow, children, and other relations to the contrary are totally barred. Thus is the old common law now utterly abolished throughout all the kingdom of England, and a man may devise the whole of his chattels as freely as he formerly could his third part or moiety, in disposing of which he was bound by the custom of many places as was stated in a former chapter, to remember his lord and the church, by leaving them his two best chattels, which was the original of heriots and mortuaries, and afterwards he was left at his own liberty to bequeath the remainder as he pleased. In case a person made no distribution of such his goods as were testable, whether that were only part or the whole of them, he was, and is, said to die intestate, and in such cases it is said that by the old law the king was entitled to seize upon his goods as the parens patriae, 
and general trustee of the kingdom. This prerogative of the king continued to exercise for some time by his own ministers of justice, and probably in the county court, where matters of all kinds were determined, and it was granted as a franchise to many lords of manors and others who have to this day a prescriptive right to grant administration to their intestate tenants and suitors in their own courts baron and other courts, or to have their wills there proved in case they made any disposition. Afterwards, the crown, in favor of the church, invested the prelates with this branch of the prerogative, which was done, Faith Perkins, because it was intended by the law that spiritual men are of better conscience than laymen, and that they had more knowledge what things would conduce to the benefit of the soul of the deceased. The goods, therefore, of intestates were given to the ordinary by the crown, and he might seize them and keep them without wasting, and also might give, alien, or sell them at his will, and dispose of the money in pius usos. And, if he did otherwise, he broke the confidence which the law reposed in him, so that properly the whole interest and power which were granted to the ordinary only those of being the king's almoner within his diocese, entrusted to distribute the intestate's goods in charity to the poor, or in such superstitious uses as the mistaken zeal of the times had denominated pious. And, as he had thus the disposition of the intestate's effects, the probate of wills, of course, followed, for it was thought just and natural that the will of the deceased should be proved to the satisfaction of the prelate, whose right of distributing his chattels for the good of his soul was effectually superseded thereby. The goods of the intestate being thus vested in the ordinary upon the most solemn and conscientious trust, the reverend prelates were therefore not accountable to any but to God and themselves for their conduct. But even in Fleda's time, it was complained, Quod ordinari, ujus mode boni namin ecclesia occupantes, nullum vel saltem indebitem fasciunt distributionem. And, to what a length of iniquity this abuse was carried, most evidently appears from a gloss of Pope Innocent IV, written about the year 1250, wherein he lays it down for established canon law, that in Britannia, tertia pars bonorum decendentium abentestado in opus ecclesiae et parporum dispensanda est. Thus, the popish clergy took to themselves, under the name of the church and poor, the whole residue of the deceased's estate, after the partes rationales, or two-thirds of the wife and children, were deducted without paying even his lawful debts or other charges thereon. For which reason it was enacted by the statute of Westminster II that the ordinary shall be bound to pay the debts of the intestate so far as his goods will extend, in the same manner that executors were bound in case the deceased had left the will, a use more truly pious than any requiem or mass for his soul. This was the first check given to that exorbitant power which the law had entrusted with ordinaries. But though they were now made liable to the creditors of the intestate for their just and lawful demands, yet the residuum, 
after payment of debts, remains still in their hands to be applied to whatever purposes the conscience of the ordinary should approve. The flagrant abuses of which power occasioned the legislature again to interpose, in order to prevent the ordinaries from keeping any longer the administration in their hands of those their immediate dependents, and therefore the statute 31 Edward III C2 provides that in case of intestacy, the ordinary shall dispute the nearest and most lawful friends of the deceased to administer his goods, which administrators are put upon the same footing with regard to suits and to accounting as executors appointed by will. This is the original of administrators as they at present stand, who are only the officers of the ordinary, appointed by him in pursuance of this statute, which singles out the next and most lawful friend of the intestate, who is interpreted to be the next of blood that is under no legal disabilities. The statute 21 Henry VIII C5 enlarges a little more the power of the ecclesiastical judge and permits him to grant administration either to the widow or the next of kin or both of them at his own discretion and where two or more persons are in the same degree of kindred, gives the ordinary his election to accept whichever he pleases. Upon this footing stands the general law of administrations at this day. I shall, in the further progress of this chapter, mention a few more particulars with regard to who may and who may not be an administrator, and what he is bound to do when he has taken this charge upon him. What has been hitherto remarked only serving to show the original and gradual progress of testaments and administrations, in what manner the latter was first of all vested in the bishops by the royal indulgence, and how it was afterwards, by the authority of Parliament, taken from them in effect by obliging them to commit all their power to particular persons nominated expressly by the law. I proceed now, secondly, to inquire who may or who may not make a testament, and what persons are absolutely obliged by law to die intestate. And this law is entirely prohibitory, for regularly every person hath full power and liberty to make a will that is not under some special prohibition by our law or custom, which prohibitions are principally upon three accounts for want of sufficient discretion, for want of sufficient liberty and free will, and on account of their criminal conduct. 1. In the first species are to be reckoned infants under the age of 14 if males and 12 if females, which is the rule of the civil law. 4. Though some of our common lawyers have held that an infant of any age, even four years old, might make a testament and others have denied that under 18 he is capable. Yet, as the ecclesiastical court is the judge of every testator's capacity, this case must be governed by the rules of ecclesiastical law, so that no objection can be admitted to the will of an infant of 14 merely for want of age. But if the testator was not of sufficient discretion, whether at the age of 14 or 4 and 20, that will overthrow his testament. Madmen, or otherwise non-compotes, 
idiots, or natural fools, persons grown childish by reason of old age or distemper, such as have their senses besotted with drunkenness, all these are incapable, by reason of mental disability, to make any will so long as such disability lasts. To this class also may be referred such persons as are born deaf, blind, and dumb, who, as they want the common inlets of understanding, are incapable of having animum testandi, and their testaments are therefore void. 2. Such persons as are intestable for want of liberty or freedom of will are, by the civil law of various kinds, as prisoners, captives, and the like. But the law of England does not make such persons absolutely intestable, but only leaves it to the discretion of the court to judge, upon consideration of the particular circumstances of duress, whether or no such persons could be supposed to have liberum animum testandi. And with regard to femme coverts, our laws differ still more materially from the civil. Among the Romans, there was no distinction. A married woman was as capable of bequeathing as a femme soul. But with us, a married woman is not only utterly incapable of devising lands, being accepted out of the statute of wills, 34, 35, Henry VIII, C5, but also she is incapable of making a testament of chattels without the license of her husband. For all her personal chattels are absolutely his own, and he may dispose of her chattels real, or shall have them to himself if he survives her. It would be, therefore, extremely inconsistent to give her a power of defeating that provision of the law by bequeathing those chattels to another. Yet, by her husband's license, she may make a testament, and the husband, upon marriage, frequently convince with her friends to allow her that license. But such license is more properly his assent, for, unless it be given to the particular will in question, it will not be a complete testament even though the husband beforehand hath given her permission to make a will. Yet it shall be sufficient to repel the husband from his general right of administering his wife's effects, and administration shall be granted to her appointee with such testamentary paper annexed, so that in reality the woman makes no will at all, but only something like a will, operating in the nature of an appointment, the execution of which the husband, by his bond, agreement, or covenant, is bound to allow, a distinction similar to which we meet within the civil law. For, though a son who was in poteste parentis could not by any means make a formal and legal testament, even though his father permitted it, yet he might, with the like permission of his father, make what was called a donatio mortis causa. The queen consort is an exception to this general rule, for she may dispose of her chattels by will, without the consent of her lord, and any femme covert may make her will of goods which are in her possession in outer droit, as executrix or administratrix, for these can never be the property of the husband. And if she has any pin money or separate maintenance, it is said she may dispose of her savings thereout by testament, without the control of her husband.
But if a femme soul makes her will and afterwards marries, such subsequent marriage is esteemed a revocation in law and entirely vacates the will. 3. Persons incapable of making testaments on account of their criminal conduct are in the first place all traitors and felons from the time of their conviction, for then their goods and chattels are no longer at their own disposal, but forfeited to the king. Neither can a fellow de se make a will of goods and chattels, for they are forfeited by the act and manner of his death, but he may make a devise of his lands, for they are not subjected to any forfeiture. Outlaws also, though it be but for debt, are incapable of making a will, for so long as the outlawry subsists, for their goods and chattels are forfeited during that time. As for persons guilty of other crimes short of felony, who are by the civil law precluded from making testaments, as usurers, libelers, and others of a worse stamp, at the common law their testaments may be good. And in general, the rule is, and has been so at least ever since Glanville's time, quod libera sit cujuscunte ultima voluntas. End of chapter 32, part 1.